Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Dr. Joe Van Herwegen is an Associate Professor at UCL Institute of Education and Director of the Child Development and Learning Difficulties Lab. Originally from Belgium, she completed a degree in linguistics and a master's in psycholinguistics at the University of Antwerp. She moved to London in 2004 to work with the late Professor Annette Karmiloff-Smith and completed an MSc in Cognitive Neuropsychology at Birkbeck College London before completing her PhD in Education at King's College London. Her research focuses on improving educational outcomes using evidence from developmental psychology, educational neuroscience and neurodevelopmental disorders. Welcome, Joe. How are you? I'm well, Cathy. Thank you. Well, thank you. We are extremely excited to have you uh, joining our podcast series. And I'm very, very passionate about many of the research interests that you have. And we've got lots to talk about given your experience. But I want to talk about a brilliant paper which you've recently uh, written, which focuses on neuromyths. Let's just stop and dwell there for our listeners who may not know what neuromyths are. Yeah, so neuromyths are common misbeliefs or, or misinterpretations about facts about the brain. And they often originate from scientific findings, but people might have oversimplified the results or they might have sensationalized the findings from the paper. And in this specific paper, you're looking at neuromyths around neurodevelopmental disorders. Again, tell us a little bit about those and how you came to look at both together. Yeah, thank you. So indeed, we focused on neurodevelopmental disorders because I do a lot of my research on uh, helping students who have neurodevelopmental disorders and improve educational outcomes. And so over the years, I've worked with a lot of teachers and other educational practitioners. And sometimes there are, you know, I recognize that there were neuromyths floating around, beliefs around neurodevelopmental disorders that I knew weren't always correct. So I went back to the literature and found out actually that not many studies had focused around what are the common neuromyths people might endorse related to different developmental disorder groups. So we talk about ADHD, Down syndrome, autism and other groups. And so that was kind of the starting point of this paper is to kind of get a better overview of what are the common neuromyths that are endorsed by teachers, but also by members of the public and to see whether there are particular neurodevelopmental groups for which neuromyths are endorsed more frequently than maybe for other groups that might be more common. And what, is, what are the sort of dangers around neuromyths in general? Why is this such an incredibly important area to focus on? So although research has shown that there might not be necessarily a difference in whether or not teachers endorse neuromyths in terms of the, the teaching quality, however, we do know that when teachers endorse certain neuromyths, it can lead to certain practices that are not correct. So one example is if we look at dyslexia, it's commonly believed that children with dyslexia make letter reversals. And so because when teachers then endorse this neuromyth of, oh, dyslexia relates to letter reversals, what may happen then is that when a child who has dyslexia does not show letter reversals is that these children might not be referred 
for proper assessments and obviously then don't get to necessary support following on from that. So we know that some of these endorsing these neuromyths can lead to practices that might hinder children getting the necessary help or also other practices in terms of mediation in the classroom. So another one for dyslexia would be that it's often believed that dyslexia stems from a problem in the vision system, so with vision, and that maybe visual overlays may help children with dyslexia improve in their writing, whereas the research again here has shown that visual overlays do not help children with dyslexia necessarily. I mean, that is absolutely fascinating because that is one that has even trickled down to the parent population, right? Absolutely. And this is where, you know, getting an understanding of which ones are these neuromits that are being endorsed and then, you know, hope that we're working now on how we can help to make sure that parents and teachers get the right information around these. And I'm absolutely passionate about this area because I believe in evidence-based approaches and in a world of misinformation, let's try and work harder on working out what researchers like you have discovered and, and disseminating that. One neuromyth that is just constantly reiterated on Twitter, on websites, sometimes it's tutoring websites that will talk about this or sometimes even educational websites, learning styles. I mean, people are always attracted. They can't resist a myth about a learning styles, can they? Tell us a little bit about what the myth is and why you think it's such an attractive myth to so many. Yes, it's a fascinating one, isn't it? So the, the learning uh, myth is the myth that children have preferential learning styles and that some children might learn better if they are taught using visual resources, whether other children might learn better if they're relying on auditory sources, for example. And I think that myth stems from the idea that we all like to be individuals and that, you know, the idea is that we need to teach to the individual child. And of course, that's true. We need to teach to the individual child. But what we also know from learning from how the brain works is that the more you get exposed to something, the easier it is to learn something. And that if you see something visually, but then later on you might hear it or you might also be tactily work with things more practically, that these are all opportunities for your brain to learn. And obviously that's what helps. So it's not necessarily that people learn better in one modality compared to another. That's the neuromit. But obviously, having lots of learning opportunities in different contexts through different modalities will help children to learn. So it's actually not the individualization, personalization. It's about the access to a diversity of teaching methods. That's what sort of stretches children intellectually. And yeah, and that we're talking about neurotypical children there, really. Yes, so this is a common myth that is still endorsed for neurotypical children, exactly. And just a couple of other things when it comes to neurotypical children, another extremely common myth, students only use 10% of their brains. Lots of dialogue about left brain, right brain, you know, you're a left brain thinker. All of this stuff has just spiraled into even commercial products at some point. Well, this is exactly what is actually driving some of these neuromyths is the, as you mentioned before, we, we really like any kind of educational practice to be evidence-based, to rely on the evidence. But this is what's happened then is that some kind of uh, products, commercialization of products have then gone to, okay, how do we link this to some of the evidence and started to link it to some of the brain evidence, but sometimes very you know, tentatively and maybe sometimes a bit too far-fetched or oversimplified results 
too much. Now, we're going to talk about prevalent neuromyths in terms of neurodevelopmental conditions. So let's just talk about some of the more well-known and neurodevelopmental conditions and how that might play out. Yes, so, so this is exactly what we did in our research. We focused on the most common ones. So we looked at ADHD, autism, dyslexia, and then learning difficulties. So we, we focused on Down syndrome for that one, as well as then some general neuromyths around learning difficulties. Would you like me to explain some of these? Yes, please. Okay. So for those of you who may not be familiar with ADHD is attention deficit hypothesis disorder and a hyperactive disorder. It's very common. So it's about 6% of the population and there's different types. So you've got children with ADHD who are hyperactive, but most of the children actually with ADHD have problems with attention where we can think of it as the the breaks in their brain, which allow you to inhibit responses may not work so well. So they often get distracted by new signals and find it difficult to concentrate in the classroom. And, and I think most educators will, will say that these are children who, who might be perceived as being disruptive in a classroom. So where are the disparities between what we know about that condition and what, say, an educator might assume about that condition? So. A common neuromyth for ADHD is that if you were to change the sugar intake or dietary requirements for children with ADHD, that they would calm down, that their hyperactivity would go away. So one of the most common neuromyths is that ADHD is all about hyperactivity, whereas we know it's more about difficulties in attention. Another common neuromyth with ADHD is the endorsement that children will grow out of it. That, you know, once they get a bit older, they'll calm down and they'll be able to concentrate better. But we know that ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder. So it means that it's caused by changes in, in, in the genes as well as the environment combined. But it's something that often runs in families. It has a genetic origin in a way. And so children don't grow out of their ADHD, although they might find some mechanisms to cope better and focus more and pay attention. The other assumption about ADHD is if children run around and do much more physical activity, they'll be able to focus more in the classroom. But actually, sometimes there can be seemingly an escalation in sort of energy after a child has been doing that sort of activity. Yes. Yeah, so one of the difficulties for children with ADHD is all about regulation and inhibition. So in the frontal cortex of the brain. And so I always like to think of it as if you really want to know what ADHD is like as a neurotypical person is imagine if you are in a restaurant and you're trying to make a conversation, but because of your ADHD, you're getting constantly distracted by the waiter, the other people in the restaurant, flirts of conversations you may pick up a door that opens, closes, etc. And so what you have to do constantly is actively try and focus. And every time you get distracted, bring your brain back to the task at hand, to that conversation you're trying to get. And so that can cause an overload of information in your brain. It's very difficult for your brain to keep constantly inhibiting something that for neurotypical people is a very easy task to do, but they need to actively make an effort to do that. And so this is where it's the distractions in the environment that cause the biggest difficulty. So also when you then ask children to run around and do a lot of things, 
it's still an overactivation of the brain, basically. And I think a lot of people, parents struggle with, if they have a child with ADHD, how best to help them unwind in the evening in the run up to bed. So I just wanted to just pause there for a moment, just to check if you have any specific, it's a very common question that I get asked. And what would you advise them after a busy day of cognitive overload at school? What should those children ideally be doing in the evening based on what you know? So based on what I know, because I must say here that I'm not an expert only on ADHD, is that it's routines and structures. Routines allow children to kind of predict what is going to happen. Once children can predict more what's going to happen, they can start putting in place their coping mechanisms in terms of how they can themselves regulate their emotions, their behaviors, process some of the information. And what we do see in children with ADHD is that sometimes they can really hyper-focus and also calm down a lot. And that's when there are very little distractions. So it might be that children develop a routine in the evenings where they can process those emotions, whether it's, you know, a bit of coloring, whether it is just, you know, listening to some quiet music, doing breathing exercises, but something that, you know, helps them to relax and and help themselves basically to relax. So routine is very important Mm -hmm. for children with ADHD. Lovely. Thank you. And moving on to other conditions. So you mentioned autism. Yes, so for those of you who may know, autism is another very common developmental disorder for about one in a hundred children at the moment are receiving a diagnosis for autism. Autism is diagnosed when children show difficulties in two areas. So one is in repetitive behaviors and, and, and fascinations, and the other one is in restricted communication or difficulties with communication. And indeed, there are a couple of neuromyths that relate to the idea that Children with autism are loners, like to be lonely, don't like to be touched because of the fact that they often show difficulties with social communication. But again, we've shown in, in there's lots of research to suggest that indeed children with autism do recognize social rejection. They do like to be touched. They do like to be around other people, but maybe within particular contexts that are predictable with people they know, etc. So just a sort of an anecdotal observation. With autistic children, sometimes, and I'm thinking, you know, that sometimes they there's an assumption that they prefer adult company, autistic children. This is my own hypothesis. Is that because adult conversation is a little bit more predictable than social interaction with children who might be coming up with games and chipping in and not really listening and everything feels a little bit choppy. Yeah, that's a very good observation. And indeed, you know, if you look at conversations between children, it is very choppy. And one of the things that most autistic children find difficult is understanding those small nuances of conversations. Why is that that you're saying that? How do I need to respond to that? If you're telling a story to someone, you need to keep in mind what information the listener already knows and what information the listener not yet knows so that you kind of fill in those gaps. And that's very difficult for young children to do, especially for autistic children who really have difficulties with these nuances of communication. And adults are just much better to that. An adult is more likely to ask a follow-up question if they haven't understood or to scaffold the conversation which young children obviously don't do. 
So that's interesting. So it may not be a lack of appetite for social interaction with other children. It might just be a preference for an easier conversation. Absolutely. It's just that, you know, with children, they kind of seem to get lost. And there's some really nice research showing that actually how autistic children speak to other autistic children or relate to other autistic children is not so different from how neurotypical children relate to other neurotypical children. So it's almost like this kind of, it's a mismatch in communication rather than autistic children not being able to communicate, for yeah. example. And that can be such a damaging label, can't it? That they've no desire for human connection. Absolutely. And, you know, there have been some, uh, you know, anecdotal stories around how that can even be dangerous of, of autistic people being labelled, you know, terrorists or loners or, you know, really a lot of stigma and a lot of, of stigmatizing labels. Yeah, that's fascinating. And have you identified, are there any sort of, are there greater volumes of neuromyths amongst parents or educators? Or is it generally balanced amongst the general population and those who are teaching? So when we set out with our research, we pre-registered our hypothesis and what we thought we were going to find in terms of open science practice. And so indeed, we had predicted that, well, educators often might already have more experience, but also, you know, they have some or many teaching courses that have cover learning difficulties and special educational needs. So indeed, we had predicted that teachers might do better compared to people from the general audience and might endorse fewer neuromyths. However, in our research, we didn't find any differences between educators uh, and those not educators, so the, the, the general population. And is that arguably indicative of poor quality teacher training? You know, where are they getting these ideas from? Because surely, you know, any I think any member of the general public would assume that teacher training contains training on how to identify neuromyths and how to dispel them. So, yes, that's exactly what, what we would think as well. So as a follow up then from the survey that we did, we also ran a few focus groups with teachers to kind of ask them, like, where do you think these neuromyths come from? How come we're not finding any differences between educators and, and the general public? And what the teachers told us is the fact that actually their teacher training courses don't contain maybe as much training on special educational needs or just brain development in general, as we might think. Of course, there's lots of variability. Some do indeed go on to master's degrees and, and, and have quite a, a variety or wide knowledge. But also the fact that often then teachers are left to go and find their own information when they, for example, have a child with ADHD or, or Down syndrome or autism in their classroom. And so they go to, you know, Google, that's the best source of your information. But as you mentioned before, Cathy, there's a lot of information out there that is incorrect, that is, you know, that, that is fueling these neuromyths and these beliefs, you know, rather than kind of fighting them, you know, bursting the neuromyths, basically. And this is where both of us align on, we're passionate about CPD, teachers should be, you know, engaged in continuing professional development and staying close to the research evidence. Absolutely. But again, teachers were telling us like when it comes to CPD, you know, schools are under immense pressure financially, but also I think in terms of time, having time to reflect on practice, having time to provide CPD. And in terms of CPD, there's always so much that needs to be covered. A lot of teachers were telling us is that kind of, unfortunately, 
topics related to developmental disorders or special needs tend to feature at the bottom of the list of things that need to be covered and done during CPD courses. Now, I want to ask about any differences related to gender or sex in terms of neuromyths. I'm sure you've got lots to say on this particular topic. Yes, oh, this is a this is a big one, isn't it? I mean, it goes back such a long time. Have people been debating around? You know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. There are differences there uh, between the male and female brain, and it goes around two things. One is is there a difference biologically between you know the female and the male brain, or or in terms of the sexes? And it was, of course, men have larger brains but if you look at the structures of the brains in terms of you know all the different areas research has shown that actually there are no differences structurally between a a female and a male brain in in the structure however that doesn't tell us anything around the functioning of the brain in terms of how we use it and again here there's been a lot of neuromyths you might have heard or sayings for example you know men are much better at spatial awareness task map reading and you know but they can't explain anything women are much better at verbal tasks multitasking etc and here it depends a little bit more in the research around what it is exactly that people have looked into so for example there have been a couple of mega meta analyses that have looked at are men better at spatial tasks like orientation tasks, trying to imagine how things look from different angles compared to women. And for those kind of tasks, you find indeed that there's a male advantage that men do better on these kind of tasks than women. However, from the moment you look at spatial tasks that have a verbal aspect to them, for example, remembering where things are in a room and writing that down or drawing a picture, women do better than men. So this is why these differences, when we kind of go categorization of men being better at one task compared to another, it's all a little bit more nuanced based on the task that people are asked to do. Because all these differences, there are really no differences in the brain as children are born between male brains and female brains, but culture, education, experiences will make sure that some people are better at some tasks compared to others. And stereotyping presumably comes into it as well. Just returning to your earlier point, is it the case that, again, I'm just thinking of, you know, the typical mother who's multitasking, doing hundreds of different things, dealing with admin across different schools, and often ends up in that particular role and and often will see herself potentially as better at multitasking. Is it just that opportunity gives people practice that, you know, so maybe, you know, the, the dad in a particular family hasn't had practice or had time or to do the multitasking, you know, that we've sort of, I'm just thinking of a sort of typical arrangement where often the mother gets kind of for some reason the tasked with doing a lot of the multitasking but maybe the other partner hasn't had a chance to practice those skills absolutely it's all about you know the opportunities that you get throughout your life on practicing certain skills and also then obviously the role models so what you know what young children then see is how mothers and fathers have different roles within the home and then take on those roles as they grow up. We know, for example, that playing with Lego is a very good scaffolding or, or kind of a foundation to develop physiospatial awareness, which we then know relates to mathematical abilities. 
And what you just see is that overdevelopment. Children very early onwards identify kind of boy games and girl games. And boys will more likely go and play with Lego than, you know, girls. And because of the fact that they look at their role models and what they do, for example. And so it is no surprise then that when we look at when children are older, there is this slight advantage that men do better at or boys do better on mathematical tasks compared to girls. And it kind of stems from these early differences in terms of what girls and boys play with. So tell us a little bit about does experience, so personal or professional experience, shape, you know, dealing with neuromyths? Yeah, so that's another thing, another great question that we had at the beginning of our research. And we thought that, well, probably when people have experience, either professionally or personally, that this would help them in terms of not endorsing certain neuromyths or beliefs. However, in our results, so we had um, 575 people who worked in education and people from the general public, and we didn't find any impact of having experience with people with developmental disorders. What did make a difference, though, in, in terms of whether or not people endorse neuromyths was how much they were engaged with science related to the brain. So how many times they, for example, were reading particular articles about the brain. So it's literally to do with their own literacy levels and what they've been accessing and being exposed to. Exactly. And that for us, you know, it's it's actually a good thing because what it shows is that if we can get people more interested in talking, reading about the facts about the brain, then probably we are able to address some of these neuromyths and dispel them. So having more of an appetite for evidence-based approaches and, and really having a commitment to that is helpful. Exactly. What would you like to see when it comes to teacher training to ensure that, you know, these neuromyths, whether they're about neurotypical children or neurodevelopmental disorders, that they don't gain credence in the classroom? I, I think there's two things I'd like to, to see. And it doesn't mean we have to go and teach teachers around to different brain structures and what each of these brain structures do. But I do think teaching teachers more about the mechanisms of learning, what happens when you are learning, and also giving them more training in research methods, how, for example, you can evaluate whether something works for your child or not, you know, and how you measure that, what's good evidence, what's maybe not so reliable evidence, would be a very good starting point, I think. And then the second thing related to developmental disorders would be, again, to give them more training on what are developmental disorders, what are the causes of these developmental disorders. We've been working a lot around, you know, are labels useful or not? And how much should teachers know about different labels? It's a big question, again, and quite controversial in some places, I think. But again, we think that labels can help. Just as if you see labels as just a starting point so that teachers can kind of know what to expect more or less and go back to then the facts and then do that kind of reflection and checking, does that work for that particular child? So we're not saying that labels are everything, but they could still be a very good starting point to give teachers some knowledge to start from. Because the label, for want of a better word, it's a horrible word, but the want of a better word It gives you insight, potentially, into how that child sees the world. 
But I think that certainly in my experience, parents struggle with the idea that their child is going to feel different and that they can feel afraid of having that stigma introduced to that child's life. What what do you think about that? It's such a difficult topic, isn't it? I mean, I know that having a label can help a child in terms of getting access, you know, thinking about education, health and care plans, you know, labels can help with getting a plan, can help with getting particular support. At the same time, you know, we know that if you get a label, might it then hinder some of the future opportunities. In my own experience, we've had people coming to our clinic with severe learning difficulties who, you know, had, for example, a genetic syndrome, Williams syndrome, which is very rare, results in severe, you know, in learning difficulties. Yet, you know, this person, because she didn't get a label early on and hadn't been diagnosed until late in her 30s, was married, had a child herself and held a job. Whereas, you know, generally when then sometimes people get a label, that can that label can be a barrier to those kind of, you know, getting a job. People have certain expectations. So it's a very difficult one. But in general, I think, you know, when a child really is struggling and has learning needs, you know, a label can help with the expectations and, and what might be good ways of supporting a child. And of course, there are so many factors in that child getting to see the clinician, the psychology of that, making sure that they are empowered by the process and not harmed by it. It's quite complex. And I think just to reassure parents listening that that's what clinicians do. They are expert in managing that relationship with that particular child. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why it is so difficult. But Still, you know, when a child's got learning needs, it is most important that, you know, parents try and find the support that their child needs. Because otherwise, as well, children can have sort of inappropriate strategies applied with them. You can exacerbate many of these anxieties around learning, and they're not going to make much progress if we haven't understood how that child is feeling and thinking and, you know, responding to the world around them. Absolutely, yes. So, Joe, what can we do to prevent neuromyths? You've mentioned teacher training, improved access to high quality information, general awareness raising. Anything else? Yes. So at the moment, we are working on an infographic that kind of outlines four things that we think educators and parents can do. Very simple things. And the first thing is to find out as much as they can around the educational needs from a child, from a trusted sources. I think that's, you know, kind of the the important one. And there are a number of them out there. So the Education Endowment Foundation, for example, has a website around what works for children with special needs. In our own, you know, the Centre for Educational Neuroscience, where I work, we have blogs around neuromyths and also about what works for different children with, just in general for children with learning, but also children with developmental disorders. The second thing that I mentioned before already is around gathering evidence. So I think if teachers could monitor, maybe keep a diary around, okay, what worked for this particular child and what didn't work, that would help bust some myths in terms of, you know, that reflection. I know reflection is difficult because obviously that requires time, but it's very important. So the third point indeed is reflection and discussing maybe with other professionals, teachers and parents to kind of say what's that child really like so that we can kind of question our own biases that we might have around learning. Also because children work differently in different contexts so that's why this reflection as part of a team might really help 
educators. And then the fourth one is around speaking to professionals and experts if they have any doubts. So what you're making me think about is, and as a researcher, this is, you know, music to my ears, that parents can be researchers. They need to observe. They need to gather information. Often parents will say to me, but my child is absolutely fine at home or not so fine in school or fine in school, not at home. We need to be looking for patterns in behavior. And one of the beautiful things that you mentioned earlier about the need for routine, if you have things in place that stay stable and secure, it's more likely that you'll see sort of aberrations in that or different patterns emerging over time. Absolutely. That's a very good point, Cathy, around, you know, the structure. And again, indeed, parents and teachers can measure, you know, or can observe what's out there. Keeping a diary, who was there in the context when the child was not so happy? What happened just before that, when the child was having a breakdown or found something difficult? What happened yesterday during maths when they were able to do it? And why can't they do it today? So we've, again, put a resource together that teachers and parents can use, which is called What Works in Your Classroom. Um, This is fantastic. I'm so (laughs) excited about it on behalf of all teachers and parents. Thanks very much. So it's, it's, again, a very simple infographic with a couple of good tips around if you want to compare what works for children in your classroom, here are some things that you can do. And it's on the Center for Educational Neuroscience website. Oh, we love that website in Tooled Up. So we're going to be sharing that everywhere and telling everyone about it. That's extremely exciting. So, Joe, last question. What are you working on elsewhere in your fantastic role that we'd be excited to hear about? Oh, gosh, big question. Related to this particular research and the neuromyths, we are launching an awareness campaign that we're very excited about. So on the 3rd of November, we are launching new blogs as well as some video explainers. And as I mentioned, an infographic to bust some of these neuromyths. So that's going to be very excited. But also we hope to do more work around teacher training to get an understanding of, you know, where are the gaps, as we've talked about today, in terms of where could more be done Because there are some courses probably that do provide some of that information and to kind of, you know, again, go to best practice and highlight the best practice. And then further down the line, we're hoping to do some more research around what really works for particular groups of children with developmental disorders and special educational needs. So if we get the funding, it's going to be a very large systematic review. Fantastic. Well, we can't wait to stay in touch with you. And this particular paper that we were talking about today, tell us a little bit about the publication of that. And we'll try and, you know, make sure people are able to download it and use it. But tell us a little bit about where people can actually find it or locate it. So the paper has been accepted for the journal in Brain, Mind and Education, and it's coming out anytime soon. So we're hoping that it will be out at the beginning of November. Fantastic. So that's another thing that we can signpost. Well, listen, thank you so much for speaking to me today. All of your work is so invaluable. And thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank you so much for having me, Cathy. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.